You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. It's getting close to Christmas, and I don't want to bring everybody down by obsessing about the stupid, but there's so much stupid out there. In Australia, a state legalized same-sex marriage and a bunch of couples got married and the Australian Supreme Court invalidated that law and nullified those marriages and unmarried those people, which is somehow defending marriage because forcibly divorcing people somehow supports traditional marriage. Somehow straight people and their straight marriages in Australia today are safer and stronger today because a handful of gay and lesbian couples have been forcibly divorced. And then there's India where the Supreme Court reinstated an anti-gay sex law, a law that criminalized gay sex. It was pushed through by the British in the 1860s and declared uh, unconstitutional uh, by a, a, a lower court a few years ago and a bunch of religious groups. Thank you, religion. You bring so much good to the world. Appealed to the Supreme Court and that law has been reinstated and Indian LGBT activists are – devastated and in an uproar and out in the streets and my love and support goes out to them. I don't know if we have any listeners in India but if we do, we're on your side and we're rooting for you and we're talking about it and we're pushing it out there and it's being discussed here in the media and people are paying attention and then there's Russia where the idiocy and the violence continues and then there's Michigan. Michigan, ladies, ladies, if you are in Michigan – you will now, thanks to the Republican-controlled legislature, have to plan ahead if you are going to get raped. If you're just thinking about you know, maybe getting raped, remember to plan ahead. You need to prep yourself. Just you – know, you need insurance. You need a special insurance policy because now thanks to the Michigan state legislature, insurance plans that are offered to all in Michigan cannot include abortion coverage for women who have been raped. If you want coverage for a medically necessary abortion in the case of rape, you need to buy a special rider attached to your insurance policy in advance of the rape that you didn't know was coming because it was a rape. Or perhaps you – your rapist will be – particularly polite and considerate and send you a telegram via Western Union six or seven months or maybe a year in advance so you can go out there and get that rider that will allow you to get the abortion that you will need potentially after your rape. But you cannot be covered in advance for that rape. You need rape insurance if you are a woman in Michigan now, thanks to the Republican-dominated Michigan legislature and the right to life organizations in Michigan that pushed this through by gathering signatures and putting it before the legislature and it cannot be vetoed. The war on women continues. It continues to be waged by Republicans in state legislatures, by Republicans in Congress. How offensive, how, how staggeringly stupid the Republicans lost the Virginia governorship because of the ever-widening gender gap, because women vote Democratic at ever-widening numbers. I don't know. Maybe because of forced ultrasound bills. Maybe because of, hey, ladies, remember to get your rape insurance extra coverage riders in advance of those rapes that you know are coming your way. 
And it almost seems as if the Republicans, the Republican Party, Republican state legislators, Republican Congress critters, Republican candidates for governor, they want to make sure that nobody votes for them who has a vagina ever again. And maybe that's a favor they're doing, liberals and progressives and Democrats. Unfortunately, that reach around from the Republican Party for us liberals, Republicans and Democrats – comes in the form of an assault on women's bodies, women's rights that, that that's so offensive on, on its face that, that you literally me who runs his mouth for a living. That's what I do. I run my mouth for a living. Sometimes I run myself into a ditch. That happens when you run your mouth for a living. I'm at a loss for it. I'm sitting here in front of a microphone just hemming and hawing because I don't even know how to wrap words around this steaming pile of – Bullshit. And then you turn on Fox News and they're debating. They're so much stupid. Like I said, so much stupid. Australia's stupid. India's stupid. Michigan's stupid. Fox News or Bullshit Mountain and John Stewart calls it stupid. There's a panel of white people on television having an argument about insisting, informing all the children of the world out there that Santa Claus is white and they're just going to have to get over it. This person that does not actually exist that we made up is – a particular – my imaginary friend is a particular race and you can imagine that this imaginary friend is also an imaginary friend of yours but you have to imagine him to be the same race that I imagine him to be because this is Fox News and the honkies are in charge. And then they add at the end of this – Megyn Kelly – at the end of this bullshit argument defending Santa Claus's racial purity from the hordes of – racially impure Christmas fantasists out there. She adds that people seem to get over it that Santa Claus is white just like Jesus who was not white. Jesus actually potentially fucking existed. We know who the folks were in that part of the world at the time that Jesus allegedly lived. And the best guess, and they're all guesses, is that Jesus was a Jew who lived in the Middle East 2,000-ish years ago roughly and so would have been a brown-skinned, dark-haired, dark-eyed guy. The kind of guy that if you saw him walking up the street, the average Fox News viewer would call the cops or stand their ground. Santa – you know, St. Nicholas, there's some 5th century, 6th century Christian saint from Turkey – where people aren't exactly trans-fucking-lucent, maybe would have been whitish. But Jesus was a brown-skinned man, if he existed. Not a blue-eyed, blonde-haired, Fox News fucking porn star, jack-off fantasy figure savior. So much stupid. I don't know where to begin. I don't know where to stop. I just want... Christmas to come so I can eat and drink and gorge myself on my mother's cookies and not think about all the stupid for a week or two. But so much stupid, so much stupid. It's actually a solace to come in here to the glamorous studios on the 23rd floor of the Washington Mutual Building where we record the podcast every week and sit down with the tech savvy at risk youth who are smart and not stupid and of course Nancy Hartunian and then take your calls which are smart, not stupid. But before we get to your calls, you can't rattle off a bunch of stupid without touching down in Texas. We're a judge this week acquitted a kid, a 16-year-old 
who was driving drunk and killed four people in another car. And he acquitted him on the basis of a, a, a plea or a defense grounded in the legal theory of affluenza, that the kid was a rich kid and had never had to shoulder and had never had to deal with the consequences of his actions that had been coddled and protected by his parents all his life and so didn't understand the repercussions of driving with four times the legal limit of alcohol in his system and taking four people's lives as a result. So he is not going to prison. He is not going to juvenile detention. He's not going anywhere. He's going on probation for a few years because nothing will instill appreciation for consequences in a rich kid who didn't realize that driving drunk could potentially have negative consequences for himself and other people than getting off after murdering with a car and some booze for innocent people on a highway in Texas. Do I need to tell you that this rich kid is white like Santa and white like Megyn Kelly's Jesus? This kid is white. Let's play Let's Pretend and imagine for a moment that this kid looked like the historical Jesus, brown-skinned, and did the exact same thing. And let's imagine for a moment that a judge in Texas would look at that brown-skinned kid who had murdered four people driving drunk at age 16 and let him off. Not going to happen in America. Because Jesus is white. There's actually more stupid sitting here on the table in front of me. More stupid I could cite. But you know, when you've visited Texas, when you've got to Texas, you've like hit the rock bottom of the stupid. When you've had, you know, name check Fox News and Texas, one right after another, you just, you're, ne you're neck deep in stupid and you can stop digging. Let's get away from the stupid. Let's take your calls. Hi, Dan. I'm a married 31-year-old woman. I had a baby five months ago, and a month after my baby was born, my husband left me. We proceeded with divorce proceedings and getting that stuff together, and at one point during that, he came to me and said that he didn't want to get divorced and that he wanted to try again, but he... He didn't want to act like we were in a relationship. He still wanted to go on a week-long vacation to Hawaii with his female friend from high school, who he says he's just friends with and blah, blah, blah. So that didn't really turn out. And then today he called and said that he thinks he's in a place where he can date again, and he thinks it makes sense for him to date me. And I don't know what to do. I want my baby to have a family that's intact, but I don't know if I could trust him or get to a place where I love him. Again, so I don't know. I reject the advice binary that there's either get back together with this guy and that's the advice I'm supposed to give you because your baby deserves an intact family and you want that for your baby or 
you know, fuck that guy and divorce that guy and you shouldn't see him and that's at the other end of the advice spectrum. But there are various points along that advice spectrum between, you know, get back together and no fucking way. Uh, that's the advice binary. No fucking way. Get back together. But somewhere in the middle is figure out what the fuck is going on with him. If you are at all interested or open to the possibility of perhaps getting back together at some point down the road, you need to get to the bottom of what the fuck his problem is. You guys got married. You had a baby. A month after you had a baby, he walked out on you. Was this some sort of facing up to being a grown-up panic attack, meltdown? Is there an underlying mental health issue that's undiagnosed? Get into counseling with that motherfucker. Get him into counseling. You have some leverage. If he's asking for you back and he's asked for you back now twice, you can set conditions not to take him back but to consider taking him back. He must do X, Y, and Z. And right now without him doing X, Y, and Z, tell him I will not even consider taking you back. But we go and sit down with a couples counselor for some sessions, plural. If you see a counselor on your own, if you can figure out what the fuck was going on with you, if you can get a full mental health checkup workup so that if there's anything else going on with you that's undiagnosed that we don't know about, it can be discovered, maybe then we can tiptoe back toward, I guess, dating. Maybe then you'll consider dating your husband and the father of your child with an eye toward the possibility, perhaps, of a future together. But until he does those things, I think you should tell him that you're not even considering getting back together, which brings us back to the no-fucking-way end of the advice binary. Hi, Dan. I'm a 34-year-old single gay male from a large East Coast city. This past week, I traveled home to one of those fun southern states to visit family and friends for the Thanksgiving holiday. While at home, I spent some time with my best friend and his wife. I've known both of them since we were 16, so we certainly have a solid friendship. My friend and his wife have been married for almost 10 years, say they're monogamous, have a couple of kids, and seem to be extremely happy. My best friend is an open-minded guy, a, a true voting liberal in a red state, and he's always supported me, one of the few when I came out many years ago. I believe him to be a true ally, straight as they come, but supportive to gay friends like me. While I was there, we went out to dinner and had a few drinks. When we got home, my friend's wife decided to go to bed. Since my best friend and I don't get to see each other very often, we stayed up late and kept drinking a bit. I was actually telling him about the Savage Love podcast and how interesting I find the questions in your, in your responses and how much it has opened my eyes and mine when looking at relationships. After a few more drinks and conversations that seemed to veer from gardening to politics, he kept coming back to the topic of sex and specifically how he had a, had had a dream about another man being present in the bedroom and how he was surprised that he didn't mind it. I smiled and interjected that that seemed pretty normal and it wasn't anything to feel weird about, but I didn't press the issue. Anyway, after a few minutes, I noticed he was, that he was rubbing his crotch while talking to me. I didn't think much about it, but then he asked me if I would mind if he jerked off in front of me, saying that he needed to rub one out before bed. I'm not quite sure that I responded in the affirmative or in any way, but regardless, he pulled it out and jerked off and came right there in front of me while looking at my crotch. Because he's truly my best friend and closest thing to a brother figure that I have, I wasn't turned on at all, nor did I stop it. I just waited on it to be over so that I could go to bed. 
I never shamed him, but I didn't acknowledge that it really happened, and I didn't reciprocate. I just sat there with a look on my face that must have conveyed something between confusion, intrigue, and horror. So while I'm not overly distraught by the actual act of what he did, I do feel hurt for a couple of reasons. I feel like he risked our friendship. While I don't find jerking off in front of a friend to necessarily be a deal-breaker, it hurt me because I feel like he changed the dynamic of our friendship. I've greatly valued his friendship because there isn't a sexual component. It's been purely platonic and without any messiness, no pun intended, and that's why it's been so strong. Secondly, I'm disappointed and frustrated by the fact that he's now completely avoiding me. He and I normally talk a few times a week, and I had planned to visit with him again on my way out of town. Unfortunately, my calls have been left unreturned, so I know that this has turned into a thing. So my question, how do we move forward? I assume I will talk to him again one day soon. Should I blow it off and pretend like it didn't happen, or should I address the issue? I'm not quite sure what I would say other than other than that I love him and I don't want him to feel ashamed or embarrassed, but I don't want it to happen, to happen again for the sake of our friendship. But I'm also curious why he did what he did. This shouldn't be a big deal, and I don't want to make it one, but I'm afraid our friendship has forever changed. You greatly valued this friendship for many years because, in part, along with all the other things that he brings to the table friendship-wise, there was no sexual component. And so it wasn't queered in any way, your friendship, by any sort of attraction on your part. But now you know that there was definitely a sexual component to his affections for you, either always present or recently surfaced or just something he's grown into. Perhaps he's experienced his sexuality as slightly more fluid than most straight guys and gay guys experience their sexualities and he's blossoming a bit and decided that to take advantage. And that's why you feel hurt. I've been there. Sometimes when you know, you're the gay one, you're the gay friend, uh, your straight friends, even your straight male friends can feel like there's nothing that they can't do or say because you're gay. And so any sort of male sexual energy, attention, action, whatever is going to be welcome because you're just gay and you're just a sponge for any sort of male sexual attention, energy, whatever. And so he made an assumption about you. He made an assumption about your interest in him sexually and absent, you know, an unverified interest in him sexually. He assumed that you would be cool with this, that you would be down with this, that this wouldn't upset you at all because you're gay and being gay is all about random incidents of masturbation in front of friends and friends masturbating in front of you just randomly. And what's insulting about that, what's left you feeling a bit I don't know, awkward and aggrieved is that it's kind of a homophobic assumption and this is this straight ally and you thought he was so cool and down with the gays and then he engaged in a performance that was grounded in all sorts of, again, homophobic assumptions about you and gay people and the way you guys, we are uh, compared to the way he is and you need to have that all out and he's probably – Ducking your calls because he's embarrassed and he doesn't have the words, he doesn't have the language, he doesn't know what to say and it's going to stay awkward until you lance the goddamn boil. I think you give him a little time. You take a little time away. Uh, it's good that you've shot a couple of emails his way that he hasn't responded to so he knows that you're not so angry or upset or put off that you never want to interact with him again. But then write him a long email that just unpacks it for him, not scolding him for what he did. Um, because 
I don't want to blame the victim here, but there was an opportunity where you could have said, uh, please don't and no and put your dick away and even before his dick came out, like, yeah, I'd rather, really rather you didn't because that would be really awkward. I'm a friend of your wife and there's never been this about our relationship. So whatever you're feeling right now, I'm sure is going to pass. And there are guys out there who'd love to watch you jack off, but your old friend, me, ain't one of them. You had that opportunity and for whatever reason, you didn't seize it. And he – I don't want to blame the victim here, but there was a chance where you could have headed this all up the pass. So don't write him an email that's all blaming him, scolding him, yelling at him about this brutal violation. Just unpack for him why this made you uncomfortable and why you don't want it to derail your friendship forever. But clearly he's trying in his clumsy, self-hating, either – internalized homophobic or internalized biphobic way trying was trying to open up to you. Unfortunately, he opened up his pants first instead of opening up his mouth first. And you should say to him like, yeah, obviously there's something, you know, you're exploring new aspects of your sexuality. I totally love and support you. If there's anything you ever want to talk about, if you want my advice, I'm here for you. I'd love to be there for you as a confidant and someone you can rely on. But I don't want to be there for you as someone you masturbate in front of again because that's just not what our friendship for me is about. And when that email lands on him, he'll probably take some time away. He'll probably think about it. He'll probably be embarrassed. You're going to run into him again, orchestrate a moment where you're going to see him again, walk up to him and say hi, treat him like nothing has changed because nothing has to change. If he mans up and has it out with you and has a chat and talks out what he was acting out. On that weird and awkward jack-offy night. Hello, Dan. I have kind of a awkward situation that I need your help with. So a few nights ago, my friends and I went out to a bar and we're all co-workers. And one of my other co-workers, and he's a guy, was there at the bar um, with all of us girl co-workers and whatnot. I had spoken to him earlier in the week, and I hadn't really gotten to know him before, so we were just drinking and hanging out, and we got to know each other. I then see him again this night, and he gets extremely wasted, and several times I had told him when we were hanging out that I had a boyfriend, that I wasn't you know, looking for anything more than interesting conversation and friendship. So he gets completely trashed, takes about 10, 11 shots, like, super wasted, falls on top of people, and then he gets in my face and says, oh, does your boyfriend know that you're talking to me? Does your boyfriend know that you're here? Blah, 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 and just causes an entire scene in front of all of my coworkers and friends, and I told him, I sent him a text message when he left. I said, look, I don't want to be your friend if this is what it's like, and he said back to me, oh, well, don't you have a man? I don't know why you're talking to me if you have a man. I don't understand what his problem is when I had been very clear that I only wanted to talk to him for friendship, but all of a sudden he thinks that I was trying to get in his pants and that I had an agenda of some sort, which I did not. So I blocked his number because I didn't want him blowing up my phone, which he was blowing up my phone all night with craziness and how I was being disrespectful and rude and how I didn't tell him up front what I wanted, which I did several times. Now, the hard part for me is that we work together. He's in a different department, but I see him all the time, and we kind of do this eyes averted, not talking to each other thing. Should I just leave it at that and not speak to him ever again, or should I talk to him and tell him about how I feel about his behavior? 
I don't know. It's just like this awkward situation because I work with him and I feel like he thought I was trying to lead him on, which I wasn't. So I'd appreciate your opinion on this. Thank you. My opinion is that this man is a deranged and nutty alcoholic asshole jerk and that you should continue to avoid him, continue to not make eye contact. I also think that you should document everything and maybe have a conversation with HR if you work in a large corporation just so that if he goes crazy vindictive bullshit on your ass that there's a paper trail there that you can point to and protect yourself with. Other than that, there's really not a lot you can do. Bitch is crazy. That bitch be fucking crazy. That straight male drunk bitch is fucking crazy and you should fucking avoid him. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old straight male living in the Midwest. I've been seeing my girlfriend for about six months. Uh, We met online and started off as more of just like a purely sexual relationship, very intense. and But uh, we've grown to know each other more and have sort of grown to love each other, I think. For the past few weeks, I have had trouble, if not a complete inability to maintain an erection uh, during penetrative sex or just prior to penetrative sex. I've been a regular porn user since I was about 14. I'm 25 now. And I have been reading online about, you know, that that might be the problem. You know, not some crazy religious thing or anything, but uh, discovered the NoFap community on Reddit and uh, read some of the stuff that they've put out there. And I don't know if that is the case for me. I watch porn about maybe two to three times a week, but I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that community or, you know, giving up porn and if that actually might solve problems for me or other younger men with ED um, or perceived ED or if it might just be performance anxiety. I've done a little bit of reading about the NoFap movement. These are uh, a lot of guys. There's a community on Reddit. There's uh, some researchers who are digging into this. Andrew Sullivan has actually written a lot about NoFap at The Daily Dish. And these are guys who believe that porn is ruining young men for sex, that the ubiquity and the ease of availability and the hardcoredness of all this porn out there has, you know, a, a couple of generations of guys now have grown up um, with access to everything and anything visually and sitting in front of a computer all day long, potentially just cranking them out, busting nuts over and over and over again. And it gives them an inability to be hard with a partner to sustain an erection when they aren't being constantly bombarded, the theory goes with new and novel images of new and novel acts and a limitless number of potential partners or images of potential partners. And then someone goes from that sort of pornocopia of everything and anything and anyone to one person that they have to relate to intimately who isn't just a button that they click and not somebody they can instantly click away from if they get bored for a moment and they're Incapable, the theory goes, of sustaining an erection in that sort of a situation. I don't know what to think about this. The research ain't done. The data ain't in. There does seem to be a lot of anecdotal evidence sloshing around out there. A lot of guys who are suffering from ED and looking for a culprit and blaming porn. I know a lot of guys out there who watch a lot of porn who do not have this problem. Obviously, you just don't take – Healthy guy, hard dick, stir in porn and get erectile dysfunction. 
If that were the case, because all guys are looking at porn, all guys would have erectile dysfunction. But clearly for some guys, they believe and perhaps it's true that porn is somehow related to their ED. You can test this for yourself by joining the NoFap movement, I guess. If you think porn might be the problem, stop watching porn, right? And then you'll figure it out. And there is a huge psychological component to arousal, male arousal and female arousal. There's a huge psychological component. And a hard dick is the tinkerbell of a sex act. You got to believe there is some psyching up and psyching out that goes into sustaining that erection. And you can develop a bad case of performance anxiety that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because you look at your hard dick and you don't believe. And like Tinkerbell, it dies because you're not clapping for it because you just don't believe hard enough. And Tinker Dick dies. Tinker Dick goes soft. But if it helps you psychologically or perhaps physiologically to eliminate porn, either or both, and that gives you the you know this power and control of your own dick and it helps you to believe that Tinkerbell will live, then go ahead and eliminate porn. See what happens. See if it helps. Also go to the doctor. Go see a urologist. Maybe there's an underlying medical issue that's part of it. Try the drugs. The drugs are out there for a reason. They help. And see if that's not the solution for you. Or tell yourself that this sometimes happens. You had a couple of spills, but you can get up back on your bike or your horse or your girlfriend or whatever and ride if you just believe. Hi, Dan. I am a bisexual female in a small college town in northern Michigan. I am an active user of OkCupid, and I met a couple online in the early 30s looking for unicorn. And I'm really interested in being a unicorn. Um, I've always wanted to be with this woman and a man, and I still haven't been with a woman, even though I'm quite sure that I'm bisexual. And they're married, and they're very into each other, but they're looking for someone else. They've been fairly aggressive about getting to know me and my interests and sexual interests online through messaging, um, but I still haven't met them in person. They want to meet up and, at a bar and get like some drinks at some point and then I can decide if I want to go back with them afterwards. Since they're like in their 30s, they're quite a bit older than me. I'm 21 and so I'm not really sure if I'll actually be sexually attracted to them because the oldest person I've been attracted to so far has been like 20, 26. So um, I still really want to meet them to, you know, get to know more about like what unicorn seeker type people are like and what it would be like and you know on the off chance that it would work out so I know that like if it was just like one guy who I met online who I was trying to visit or wanted to meet and I was pretty sure I wouldn't be attracted to him it probably wouldn't be okay but this is kind of a different situation so my question is is it still okay to meet with them or is that kind of wrong since I I'm pretty sure that it won't work out. There's no harm in meeting them for a drink. If only to practice this meet for a drink skill that you're going to have to develop if you're going to be a unicorn out there looking for couples who might be interested in you. Uh, I think instead of going to meet them uh, under a pre-negotiated 
scenario where if the drink goes well, you're going to go home with them that night, which is going to place you under pressure to go home with them that night or to disappoint them that night in the moment. What you should do is say you'd like to get a drink at a time when you can't go home with them and they can't bring you home, perhaps a coffee instead, something earlier in the day, perhaps happy hour cocktails before you have a commitment or they have a commitment. So there's no pressure. There's no expectations of anything happening in the moment. That way – and you should say this to them – that way you won't feel obligated to go through with anything and you'll have a moment to think about it and they won't feel obligated to go through with anything and they'll have a moment to think about it because they might not be into you. And so just throw that out there. You know, If we meet and you know, it's an open-ended situation where sex could happen, somebody might wind up having sex that they don't want to have to, out of fear of disappointing each other. So let's meet at 5 o'clock. Let's have happy hour. I have tickets to a show that night and then, then we'll circle back and we'll make an appointment for another round of drinks if it goes well. That way you won't be under this pressure. And then don't feel bad if you think because they are so elderly and ancient and decrepit and decaying in their 30s uh, that they couldn't possibly attract you physically. You're not really being a deceitful bag of slop by going to have a drink with them even if you think that you know you might really not be into them. Most people who have these sorts of meeting ups through OkCupid or wherever else um, don't end up hooking up with whoever it is that they met up with. Whether you're talking about dating, there's usually not a second date when you're talking about online dating and finding sex partners or hookup buddies or friends with benefits or a unicorn. Usually there's a meeting and people realize that whatever attraction was established through email or through the exchange of pictures, there's no chemistry in person. You just don't click and it doesn't work. This can put people off online dating because of this churn that's kind of built into it. You know, if you're in a bar, you're in a club, you're able with a glance or a brief exchange to determine whether or not you're into somebody. Rule out all the people that you're not physically attracted to. You rule out people who you have a brief interaction with who reveal themselves to be too drunk or too stupid or too socially maladapted for you to be interested in. And instantly you're able to sort you know, 200 people into a bar into the handful of people you might be interested in. But when it's online, you often have to go that extra step and actually make an appointment to go meet this person before you can determine over drinks what in any other sort of – Real world meeting in bars, clubs, school, work, classes, whatever, interaction, you would be able to determine instantly without any effort. And so online dating requires a lot of dates that meeting in public, meeting in bars doesn't require. And same thing with the unicorn hunt. So they probably met with other girls. They will probably meet with others after you if you're not into them or they're not into you. And they're not – if they have any sort of brains in their heads, they're not expecting – even an 80 percent chance or a 40 percent chance or a 20 percent chance that this is going to work. So going into a meeting like this, knowing that it might not work or most likely will not work, you're not abusing the system. You're not abusing OkCupid or Unicorn Hunt or anything else. You are just going to have a drink with some people who have expressed an interest to see what might happen. That's the rule. That's the game. Hey, Dan. 35-year-old male here from Philadelphia. I have a question. Still sort of dating my um, 26-year-old girlfriend. Uh, problem is, our sex life has changed. When we first started dating, I mean, we were able to do every position, you know, Kama Sutra 10 times over. Um, I was able to soar around. Uh, it was great. The problem is, can't do that anymore. Um, due to stress from my job, and also um, I'm a avid walker living here in a big city. 
Yeah, I lost about 20 pounds. My girlfriend, or semi-girlfriend on the other hand, has gained about 20, 25 pounds. She's super self-conscious about her weight. I always tell her she looks beautiful. You know, I'm super conscious to not mess with her self-esteem. However, all we can do is doggy style and missionary. Um, she's been on top of me a few times where she's uh, cracked a rib. And, uh, you know, that made her self-conscious. I don't know what she do uh, or how to bridge the subject. If you could help, that would be great. At first, I was a little mystified how she could crack a rib, break a rib, by being on top during sex because you would need to have, I don't know, your dick on your sternum, your dick in the middle of your chest and she sat on it and broke a rib or you'd have to have, I don't know, ribs where your pelvis was supposed to be and when she sat on your dick, she broke your pelvic rib. Uh, and then it was pointed out to me by one of the heterosexual sex having at-risk youth that – tech-savvy heterosexual sex having at-risk youth – that you could have been 69ing or she could have been sitting on your chest while she gave you a blowjob facing down or something else. And still that doesn't quite – I'm having a hard time picturing how that results in a broken rib, how 20 pounds makes the difference between her successfully sitting on your chest while she gives you a blowjob and everybody happy and you in the ER with cracked ribs and a crushed sternum and a collapsed lung. I just don't think 20 pounds is going to be the 20 pounds of fat that breaks the camel's rib cage in half. I just don't get it. But, you know, okay, I'm just going to run with it. All right, here you go. Here's what you should do. Uh, you should have sex in the positions that work. Have sex in doggy style. Have sex missionary. If you Because of this added 20 pounds, you know, probably much less than 20% of her body weight to begin with, if she weighed more than 100 pounds, which she probably did to begin with, um, if it's really so problematic, you can talk to her about whether – you know, there's depression or other issues. She just needs motivation to get out of the house and start exercising and walking with you, whatever else it is. If she's feeling a little bad about her weight and about your shattered bones, that might be motivation enough for her to get out there in the world and do something uh, to lose that weight, provided she hasn't gained the weight for some other underlying reason that exercise and diet cannot control or get in front of. Good luck to you and your ribcage. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old straight female in a long-term relationship for about a year with a man. I am calling because we recently tried anal sex for the first time. Um, we did use lubricant, and we did a little bit of research beforehand. It was the first time either of us had tried anal sex. Both agreed that we would try it again. But I did have a question for you because afterwards I kind of had a little bit of a stomach ache. Um, maybe for like a few hours afterwards. And I haven't been able to find anything online about whether or not this is normal. In fact, a lot of the things that I found online are pretty negative about anal sex, which is ridiculous. But I was just wondering if you had any suggestions or if you had any um, resources that we could take a look at. Um, because this definitely is something, aside from that one issue, of just a little bit of a stomach ache, we would want to try again. But I wanted to see if I could prevent that in any way. So, thank you. If it, shortly after anal sex you had an asthma attack or shortly after anal sex you noticed that you had a hangnail or shortly after anal sex you stubbed your toe, you wouldn't necessarily think, oh my God, asthma attack, stubbed toe, hangnails after anal sex 
clearly anal sex induced asthma attack, stub toe hangnail. You would think, huh, probably unrelated, perhaps a coincidence. I've never heard anyone ever say that they got a stomach ache as a result of anal sex. Who knows? Maybe you were a ball of tension going into this and you were clenching your guts and your, your stomach gets upset. Maybe you have a sensitive stomach to tension and anxiety and there was a certain amount of tension and anxiety that built up in the run-up to you getting fucked in the ass and afterwards you noticed when you were calming down that, yeah, my gut kind of hurts. My stomach hurts. Maybe that's a normal thing for you tension-wise. Or maybe it was something you ate. Maybe you just had a, a completely anal unrelated stomach ache uh, that was peculiarly timed that sh fell shortly after the anal but was not caused by or in any way related to the anal. Here's how you figure it out. Do it again. Try it again. Try it a couple of times uh, more and see if indeed you have some sort of weird random rogue nerve that runs from your sphincters up into your stomach and touching that nerve induces an immediate stomach ache in you that anal play induces in no one else because um, I assume if this was at all common that I would have heard about it in the last 20 years of fielding butt sex questions from newbies. I think it's unrelated. Try it again. I bet you will have anal absent stomachal pains. Good luck. Hey, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old straight male from Los Angeles and I fucked up. Uh, First of all, I've been suffering from depression for most of my adult life. I started seeing a therapist weekly about a year ago, and things have gotten a lot better until recently. Um, I know you always say you should stay out of relationships when you have issues with mental health, and for about six years, I did just that. Uh, luckily, I play in bands, and, and I'm a fairly attractive guy, so I never had a problem getting laid. Um, but then, out of nowhere, I started having sex with a girl who was not only a friend, but a coworker. Like I said, I fucked up. We're talking about a girl who is a 10 and has actually dated celebrities in the past. So like with my depression and self-loathing, suddenly I'm having sex and doing very boyfriend-girlfriend things like carving pumpkins together for Halloween with a girl who I'm incredibly attracted to and has dated people far more successful than me. So I instantly got attached and I instantly made her part of my self-worth. And I made myself vulnerable and put all my emotions on the table. And the thing is, my logical side of my brain is very aware of the fact of how wrong this girl is for me in just about every sense. She's not very smart. Um, I don't trust her. And my friends don't like her. Once again, I fucked up. <laughs> anyway, about a month went by and I slowly started to realize that she didn't want to keep fucking me and that she was still not over a few of her past relationships. With her constantly talking about her exes and getting emotional and wanting me to help her with those problems, I reached a breaking point and I called it all off. So things got pretty dramatic at work for a few days, but eventually they kind of calmed down. The problem now is that she still really wants me in her life in a weird way. I still have, and I still have a drug-like addiction to her. She calls me, texts me all the time, and I can't stop feeding into it. I mean, this is how pathetic I am at work. Okay, we work in a nightclub. I watched her go home with a guy I really don't like, and that was really, really hard on me, but I had to let it happen, obviously. But then I got a call from her at 5 in the morning telling me about how this guy fucked her and then left her, and she was really upset about that. And she wanted me to help ease her pain. And I told her how unfair it was to tell me about that, considering my feelings. And she responded by saying, I thought you were my friend. I thought you would help me. 
It's like she wants me to be her emotional interim boyfriend that doesn't get any of the benefits of being a boyfriend and also has to pick up the pieces when it comes to other guys. I feel so pathetic, inadequate, and have reached a depth of depression that I haven't felt in over a year. But every time I try to pull away, she plays the victim and makes me feel really guilty, like I have an obligation to take care of her. So how do I get out of this mess? If I didn't have to see her all the time, I would just cut her out. But I work with her, and we have some of the same friends, and I'm trying to avoid as much drama as possible. But if I just say, I don't want to talk to you anymore, she's going to make me into the bad guy. And probably around work, too. I mean, it's getting to the point where I don't even want to go into work anymore. She's driving me crazy, and my depression is rolling back in in the worst way. Help me, Dan. Her presence in your life makes you miserable, and you then say that you don't want to cut her out of your life because you don't want to deal with the drama and the fallout. Look at the drama and the fallout going on in your life right now. Look how miserable you are. Look how unhappy you are. Look at the way she's jerking you around. Remind yourself every once in a while that you dumped her, and then look at the way she's jerking you around. And do you not see the revenge play that's at work here? You dumped her. That's not the way the world is supposed to work. She's the beautiful one. She's supposed to dump you, and now she's using you, as you put it, as her emotional interim boyfriend who doesn't get any of the benefits of being a boyfriend, or as I've heard it called in the past, in a phrase I quite like, she's using you as her emotional tampon. You are there to soak up the pain and the drama. But she can only use you as her emotional tampon if you allow her to insert yourself into her life in inappropriate ways for someone who is not her boyfriend. Cut her off. Don't answer the fucking phone. Don't respond to her goddamn texts. Stop talking to her. Tell her that she's making you miserable. That, that the interactions, the being used like this make you miserable. Tell her you are not her friend. You dated. You were interested in her romantically. It did not work out. And you are not interested in a friendship. It's too painful. Not everybody who dates, not every couple are, are, are suited to also be each other's friends then if it doesn't work out. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes people who are friends start dating. They have a romantic connection. Sometimes people who – their relationship begins with dating and romance. The relationship ends. The sex ends. They part ways. They remain friends. But that's not always the case. There are people who are good together who forever long the relationship lasts but who cannot be friends when it isn't a dating romance thing. And you are that for her and she is that for you. It has to stop. Don't let her manipulate and abuse you with this – Notion, don't let her beat you with this stick that you're somehow a bad guy who is only interested in her for sex if you don't rush in to hold her hand when some other guy fucks her and makes her feel bad and gives her a fifi. That's terrible. And you have to be there at those moments to hold her hand and tell her it's going to be okay. Otherwise, she's going to look at you and say, you were only interested in sex. You were only using me for sex. You're a bad guy. Look at her and say, yeah, I was a bad guy. Only interested in your sex and it's over. Fuck off. Go away. Don't talk to me. And then here's how you handle it at work. If there's drama, don't you instigate it. Don't you be the source of any of the drama. If she blows up and causes scenes, be polite, be respectful, smile without goading, de-escalate those situations, apologize to your coworkers and say, you know, we just 
We dated for a while, then we were friends, and not even friendship worked out. So we're not friends anymore, and she's mad at me. And she's a wonderful person, and I feel bad that it's gotten to this point. Uh, and hopefully it'll blow over soon, and I apologize you guys got dragged into it. And then never talk about it again. And then if she is the engine of drama, she will be the bad guy. Even if at first she's able to manipulate people into thinking that she's the victim just like she's manipulated you with this victim shit. If, at first, if she's able to manipulate people by you know thinking she's the victim and you've done this terrible thing to her by not rushing to her aid at 5 o'clock in the morning when some other guy fucked her, if she tries to keep the drama going, your coworkers will see that you aren't driving the drama, that you aren't creating this shit, that you're doing your best to de-escalate and to be the adult in the room and she's the engine of it. And even if you're the bad guy in the first week, if she keeps it up, people will – change their opinions. They will begin to see her as the bad guy and not the victim in this situation. And you need to – yeah, she's hot. There are hot people in the world. Hot people are awesome. Not all hot people are nice. Not all hot people are sane. She has dated guys who are so much more successful than you. Yeah, maybe she did. She didn't date any of them successfully or she would still be with one of them, would she not? Oh, she could do so much better than you. But she hasn't, has she? Right? She is the common denominator in all of her failed, fucked up relationships. Right? Not you. Stop letting this relationship shred you. She sounds toxic. Stay the fuck away from her. Block her phone number. Stop talking to her. And you need to ask yourself at some point during this drama of um, why you're so wrapped up in this girl. You say that she's beautiful. You say that she's a 10. You say that she's dated guys who are so much more successful than you. Again, hasn't dated any of them successfully. Otherwise, she'd still be with them. But she's dated guys who are so much more successful than you. And you're so invested in her sort of emotionally. And you don't like her. You don't care for her personality. You think she's stupid and she's clearly kind of crazy and toxic and yet you are so wrapped up in her and why? Because she's beautiful. That's kind of shallow. There is a point at which someone, however beautiful they are and beauty is a kind of power and attractive people attract. But there's a point at which for any sort of sane and functioning adult, a beautiful person can curdle themselves. They can be so unappealing in other ways that their beauty does not compensate. And you need to ask yourself why with all this drama and bullshit and whatever else she doesn't have going for her, you still pine for her in this way. And it's because she's hot. Well, there are other hot women out there in the world and there are women out there in the world who are hot enough who aren't so fucking toxic. Go find one. She has this power over you because you've given her this power over you. Because you are invested in her beauty and what that means. It's kind of a – perhaps in your mind, a form of success that you are like those much more successful people in a way because you got with her as they did. They got with her and she has conferred upon you a kind of sexual success that you don't enjoy professionally yet. Let it go. Let it go. See that for what it is. It's kind of – I don't want to crank up your depression or self-loathing. But that's kind of pathetic and you are not pathetic and you – we all have our pathetic moments. We all have our self-loathing moments, our depressed moments, our, our, our stupid moments where we do things that are dumb and self-defeating and even self-harming. 
But then when we can see them for what they are, when we have a little bit of clarity, we wake up and we walk away and we resolve not to make that mistake again. You need to wake up, walk away and resolve not to make that mistake again, not to be so invested in the hotness of your partner as if that is success for you as a man because it isn't. The hottest partner in the world, if they're awful, is not a marker of success. It's a marker of failure. You failed yourself. Good that you broke up with her. Now you need to break it off with her permanently and forever for your sanity. Hey, Dan. So my question um, it is nearing the holiday times and I'm set to go meet my girlfriend's family this winter at their house and, and stay there with them. The only thing is, is that my girlfriend's not out to her family and she also has um, a pretty serious um, back injury that is causing her to live in like a lot of pain right now. So when I, when we talked about going home, I said, really, I, you know, coming out to your family doesn't have to be like a big to do, you know, these days people just say, Oh, Hey, mom and dad, I'd, I'd like to bring my girlfriend home this Christmas, you know, not in a, I'm forcing everything down your throat kind of way, but you know, it's not like you have to bring out the, the, the rainbow flags and all that stuff. Anyway, so that's not what I was expecting. I just want to feel comfortable in their home and I want to feel welcome and I don't want to feel like I'm intruding or stepping on anyone's toes. Um, and she's not really into telling her parents this information. She kind of just wants me to come and like be her special friend. And um, I guess I'm calling because I need a reality check. And when I talked to my mom about this, my mom has had some of the same back problems as my girlfriend. And her thought was, Nat, you know, you just need to calm down because you have no idea what she's going through with her back. And actually, that takes first priority right now. And that is more important. And maybe it, she's too overwhelmed to have an official coming out process, but she does want to share the holiday with you. This is a person that I've been with for a little over a year, and um, she's going on 30. So I would like your opinion, Dan. Um, should I, is this like a big you know, sign in the way saying like this person is not into committing or what have you, or is this totally normal that she doesn't want to deal with this, uh, you know, coming out shit during this, this specific Christmas and I should let it go and just like knock back a few drinks and not worry about it. What do you think, Dan? Here's what you say to this person. I feel serious about you. I want to have a future with you. I can't have a future with you in the closet. However, because of your medical issues, because we've only been together a year, because even though you're 30, you're not yet a grown-up in that you're not out to your parents, I'm going to lay down a marker. I'm going to do you a solid. Tell you what. I'll go home. I'll be your special friend. We'll do Christmas. Um, you don't have to force the issue or push the issue or worry about it, but just this once, just this one Christmas. This time next year, if we're still together, you really got to be out to your parents. This time next year, if we're still together, it'll be two years. That's around the point maybe a year after that where people think about getting married and at that point, you really are going to have to be out to your parents. So you get a pass this year. This Christmas, I'll go home. I will be your very special friend. I will knock back a couple of drinks. Always a good plan when you're home with family for the holidays to knock back a few drinks and I will keep my mouth shut about who we are to each other. Uh, and We can be circumspect and I won't PDA you but by next Christmas, if we're still together, you need to be out. Pick your holiday if you want to 
pick your holiday. If you don't want to ruin mom and dad's Christmas, you can do it on Flag Day. You can do it on July 4th. You can do it on Memorial Day weekend. But you're going to have to do it. That is the price of admission that you will have to pay. You'll have to grow up and come out if you want to be with me. Hi, Dan. I am a straight female in her mid to late 20s who's living on the West Coast. Um, so a couple months ago, I met this guy online, and we've been dating since. And although things were going uh, kind of slowly in the beginning, I've grown to really enjoy my time with him. Um, we have so much fun together, and he treats me better than any other man has in years. Um, and sex is also pretty good, and we're both fairly GGG. So I can only imagine that doing better. I'm looking for a relationship, and I think that he is too. So uh, so far, I think that we're off to a good start. The problem is that he never tells me that he finds me attractive, and it's really starting to bother me. Um, the extent of his compliments are that I look nice or that he likes an outfit that I'm wearing. Um, and he's talked before about other women being very pretty or beautiful, so I know that he does find women very attractive. And it's really important to me that the person I'm dating um, tells me that I'm attractive. Um, my friends often tell me that I'm beautiful, and past partners have always told me that I'm super hot, so I don't think that I'm ugly, and I just don't know about it. Um, so I don't really know what to do, Dan. Um, I don't want to push the emergency exit button with this one, as I so often do. Uh, should I just confront him, which would feel super awkward, because I don't feel like I should have to ask someone to tell me that I'm attractive. Or should I just forget about it and accept the fact that uh, he may never tell me that I'm pretty? Yeah, you shouldn't have to ask someone to tell you that you're attractive. Particularly if you know you're attractive, you shouldn't need to be told that you're attractive. That, that, that's my gut response. But then I have to back up because beautiful people can be insecure. Beautiful people can be insecure about their beauty. And some beautiful people need to be told. They need to hear that they're beautiful. They need those affirmations. For people who aren't as spectacularly and arguably, objectively, conventionally attractive as you are, that can seem calling that a beautiful person needs to hear it, needs to be told. I have a friend who years ago used to date the, the most stunningly gorgeous women, way out of his league, it would appear. And I once told him, you know, oh my god, if you were a gay dude, you could not date guys who are that far out of your league. How do you keep getting these girls? And he said, well, I asked them out. And w w what he explained to me and it kind of blew my mind was – a lot of men were so intimidated by how beautiful these women were that they couldn't even approach them. So they were not used to being asked out on dates. They were used to getting shouted out on streets by assholes, but they weren't used to being asked out on dates by seemingly nice guys uh, at galleries and wherever else he was meeting these stunningly gorgeous women. So yeah, gorgeous people can be insecure. Gorgeous people can need to hear it too. If you need to hear it from this guy who is showing you that he thinks you're attractive – He's into you. You guys are having sex. His dick certainly thinks you're attractive. It's attracting his dick. If you need to hear it, if you need him to say it, tell him. Don't confront him. Just tell him and wrap it up not in you're doing this compliment me thing wrong and I'm angry but in I'm a little insecure about this and I know it may seem a little silly particularly as I'm stunning but I need to hear it. I need to be told. It's important to me that the person that I'm with – thinks I'm pretty and so would you please tell me I'm pretty in a more sort of enthusiastic and less rote way than just you look nice? And you might have to coach him in that. You might have to ask him for that. You might have to look at him and say, hey, tell me I'm pretty and then he'll say, hey, you're pretty. But the price of admission to be with this guy, not all people are good at this. Some people don't think they should have to sit around telling their hot partners that they're hot all the time. 
But if the price of admission of being with you is that he's going to have to bust out those compliments that he may feel that you being you and living in a house that has a mirror in it should not necessarily need to be told. But if the price of admission to be with you is to say those things, he'll probably pay it and pay it happily and get used to it and bust them out. Maybe he feels – maybe he's seen you harassed. Maybe he's seen you catcalled on the street and figures that he's a respite. He's giving you a break from being assessed solely on your looks all the time. Maybe he feels like that's part of his role, loving you and being your boyfriend, is to not constantly rub your nose in the fact that he is scrutinizing you as an object. But if you enjoy that kind of scrutiny, if you want it, if you welcome it, if you need those kinds of affirmations, dudes ain't clairvoyant. They're not mind readers. If that's what you need from a boyfriend and he's a pretty good boyfriend and you think you might have a future together, tell him that's what you need from him. Ask him to give it to you and you deserve it because you're pretty. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old woman living in the Pacific Northwest in an urban center and I work in an abortion clinic. And basically, um, I would like your advice on whether and how to disclose this information to my family and my husband's family. Uh, my husband and I both grew up in the Bible Belt culture. Um, our families are both extremely conservative, extremely Christian, and extremely pro-life. They are one-issue voters, and that issue is abortion. Um, I've always been, in, well, for the past several years, I've been involved in reproductive rights. But uh, in the last three months, I've started working at an abortion clinic that provides mostly second trimester abortions, but also some early third trimester abortions. And I've recently become quite anxious that my family is going to find out about the work that I do. Um, my husband's family actually lives pretty near us, and his father is a minister for one of the for a fundamentalist uh, Christian congregation. Um, and I've become so anxious that they're going to find out, and yet so conflicted with them not knowing about the work that I've that I'm doing that I've started having nightmares about protesters. Um, and so I've just been giving this a lot of thought. And my question for you is, given their beliefs about abortion, is it okay for me to guard this secret and do everything I can to prevent them from finding out? Or given the political climate that is going on right now uh, around surrounding abortion and women's access to abortions and contraception and everything, is it, am I obligated, morally obligated to try to educate them um, I have this unique position of understanding their background and understanding their beliefs and, and why they feel the way that they do about abortion. And yet I also work in a clinic and I have all this exposure and I work with all these women and I know I know their stories and some of these stories I think are are powerful enough to maybe change the minds of some people. So my question is, do you think that I should disclose or do you think that this is a secret that that I should keep? And then if I am justified in keeping that secret, what do you recommend about, what do you recommend that I do about the kind of anxiety that I have about 
my work life and my family life. Thanks, Dan. So, so how does a girl from a good Christian, rabid, anti-choice, fundamentalist, wackadoodle family wind up working in an abortion clinic? Um, I guess it's kind of a long story, but it started with me being 19 and needing to get an abortion um, eight years ago. Wow. So, yeah, it's uh, it, that started the process for me. And then ever since then, I've been pretty profoundly pro-choice and supportive of reproductive justice. Does you, is your family aware that you're pro-choice even? Um, my family is, yeah. And I actually think that my husband's family is sort of aware of it. They, we just haven't spoken about it. Does your family know that you got an abortion once? Um, yes, my mom does. Uh, it was actually really, really happened in an unfortunate way. Um, I was in Texas and when I got the abortion and so there was a sort of a waiting period and during that waiting period I had some bleeding so I went to the hospital mm-hmm. and they sent my parents the hospital bill and that is how my family found out about my abortion. Um, and have they given you over the years grief about this? How did they react to this information and news? Because you can gauge their response to mm-hmm. what you're doing now professionally based yeah. largely on how they reacted to getting that news when you were 18 about the abortion that you right. got. Well, actually, I kind of misspoke. When I was 18, since I had been at the hospital, I told them that it was a miscarriage. And then uh, years later, I confessed to my, I told my mom. And how did she and take it? She she took it pretty well. She was supportive. I never told my my father though. Mm-hmm. And certainly, your husband's but, family doesn't know. Right. Actually, no, I don't think that they know. So what what do you think the odds are that if you did go home for Christmas and say, "By the way, I uh-huh. work in an abortion clinic," that there would be abuse, violence, screaming, yelling, throwing things that you would become basically the clinic that your family took up picketing yeah. for the rest of their lives. Uh, my family, no, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, or I don't think that would happen. And I feel like I could probably tell both of my parents. Um, but my husband's family is a different story. Mm-hmm. And obviously I, I can't tell them without him being okay with me telling them because his relationship with them is on the line too. Mm-hmm. Do you have a close relationship with your husband's family? Does he? Uh, It's more of a friendly relationship. It's not close. Um, They know that we, they sort of know that we don't have the same religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't go to, they live in town, we don't go to their church. So so basically, you've begun the long, slow process of cutting them out of your lives. Really, well, you have. It's just like somebody who's not out to their parents about being gay for fear of losing or upsetting them that you lose your parents by not coming out to them in the end because you have to cut them off of so much information about your life and about your romantic life and your intimate life and your emotional life and, and who you are and who you love and who you know that for you know you never came out to them for fear of losing them. And in the end, 20 years later, you've lost them because you didn't come out to them. Because mm-hmm. you've had to like push them out. And it sounds like you guys for lots of reasons because you don't want to be micromanaged about your faith. You don't want to be hectored or bullied about other issues that you've really mm-hmm. placed limitations on your engagement with your husband's family. Is yeah. That, is that I, fair to say? That's, that's, that's how it's been, yes. OK. And so what's to be gained then 
by telling them. There's not much to be lost. Ten years out, there, yeah. there will be, they will have an even smaller presence in your life. So there's not much to be lost. But what do you think is there to be gained by coming out to them about the fact that you work in an abortion clinic and you guys are strongly pro-choice? Well, I guess what would be gained is us feeling like we can be ourselves to them and not being ashamed of it. Okay. But you, do you think you're going to change them? I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't think you're going to change them. Yeah. You know, okay. I, I think you can change somebody when they realize that their kid is gay and, you know, or when an uncle or a cousin or, you know, a, a sibling comes out, you can really change them. I'm not sure that finding out that their daughter in law is works in an abortion clinic is going to change a fundamentalist preacher, rabid anti-choicer into a pro-choicer. You can have as many knockdown screaming arguments as you want to have at Christmas and Thanksgiving and, and on other holidays, birthdays, whatever, for the rest of your lives. And it's just going to generate a lot of drama and, and fury and rage. Well, and, and, and to little benefit. You know, I'm kind of I, I, you know, I'm kind of coming down on the side of be closeted or as I've sometimes said in relationships with parents, run them on a need to know basis. Do they need to know this? They know yeah, who you well, are. Well, they, they know who you are. They know who you love. Do they need to know exactly what you do? You work at, you work in a medical office. Do they need to know more than that? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. probably not. And is there anything to gain by them knowing exactly what kind of medical office? What's to be gained? What are, what are you going to bring into your life? Drama, conflict, bullshit. Yeah. Grief. Well, that seems to be how my husband feels about it. Does he have much of a relationship with his family? Um, it's again, it's it's pretty distant and and strange, friendly, and yeah, yeah it's cordial. It's just we don't tell them anything that they wouldn't want to hear. Right, and does this in any way leave you feeling constrained? Tell it not um, t- not telling them what they don't want to hear. Is it in any way having a negative impact on your life? You'd, well, only that when when we are around them, and sometimes I feel um, close to them in some ways, it would be nice to be able to be honest about why we're doing what we're doing, or to be honest about what I'm doing at work. This is just really tough, because I don't want to encourage yeah. you to be dishonest, and I don't think you're doing anything you need to be ashamed of or should be ashamed of. I actually right. think you're doing important and crucial and praiseworthy work that, that needs to be done and, and yes. you're benefiting women and families. But I just don't, you know, see what yeah. opening ourselves up to, you know, decades of abuse from angry psychotic relatives who you're in the process of basically cutting off and, and limiting their, their, you know, power of your emotionally, socially is going to get you in the end, except grief. Yeah. You, you've already left okay. them behind and you know you, you, uh-huh. you said is your, your desire to come out to them is to bring them around and maybe you could educate them. Maybe you could through your experience and the conversations you could have in the wake of this disclosure, open their eyes. I, do you really think you could open their eyes? Well, I do, just think that – Do you think you could make them pro-choice? They, I don't know if I can make them pro-choice but I think that if they know me as a good person and then they find out what I do, it might kind of open – it cause them to be a little bit more questioning and to jump to conclusions less quickly. And and maybe that's true. And maybe – and it just brings us back. I, I'm just waffling like crazy with this question of yours. And maybe yeah. that brings us back to the you've got nothing to lose. Like come out to them and maybe they'll realize that, hey, wait a minute. We know a baby killer. They're not all bad people. <laughs> 
Yeah. Right? Yeah. Or or you come out to them and then they're completely out of your lives, which they were on their way to being out of your lives anyway. So it just accelerated mm-hmm. that process of losing them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so maybe you should come out to them, but but <laughs> but they're your boyfriend or pardon me, they're your husband's parents. Right, I can't make that choice. For him. And he can't make a choice um, to make – he can't choose for you to be closeted all your life. He can't choose to – you know, he can't order you not to say your truth, not to speak your truth. You. But you can – you should take into consideration his feelings and his relationship with his parents when you're weighing the, the consequences and, and the desirability of speaking your truth to these people who might be psychotic mm-hmm. on this issue, who've demonstrated to you and him that they are psychotic on this issue. Yeah, and I just, I just like it always comes back to me for what's to be gained. What do you gain here? They're on their way okay. out of your lives, so you're going to lose them. So if you tell them and lose them, you just accelerated the losing process, and it just feels like the 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 chance that you would bring them around through rational conversation about this issue that they are not rational about because I believe people who are rational about this issue land in the pro-choice column almost right. always. True. So that you're not going to be yeah. able to bring them around through rational debate about the fact that you that their daughter in law is a baby killer in their yeah. eyes. I know, yeah. And so well, I, I, I guess I come down on the conflict avoidance side of this, and 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 maybe we'll get calls about this. People are going to yell at me, like whether I'm right or wrong about this. Your calls are welcome, and, and whether I'm you know encouraging a culture of shame and closetedness about abortion that I don't believe should exist. I don't. I, I believe this should be out in the open and out in the daylight. But just the interpersonal relationships aspects of this, this small family dynamic here, mm-hmm. I don't see the benefit. Okay. Okay. Well, I think probably I, I will not purposefully come out to them, but if it ever somehow comes to light because we live in the same city, um, I'm willing to face whatever that means. And don't get me wrong. I do think that you can be the rabid pro-choicer in the family. I don't think you should have to sit around listening to anti-choice horseshit at a family event and keep your mouth shut, that you should speak Mm -hmm. up for women. You should speak up for women's reproductive freedoms. You should point out to them that banning abortion doesn't stop abortions. It just leads to unsafe and dangerous abortions that kill women. Right. As we've seen in Romania, as we see in Nicaragua, as we see in Brazil, these countries where Abortion is illegal and very hard to get. Women are still getting them. Women are dying. Mm-hmm. Women are being prosecuted for getting abortions. Mm-hmm. Mis- okay. Miscarriages are investigated as if they were crime scenes. You know, mm-hmm. there are you can reason with them and, and you should defend your position aggressively. But I'm a baby killer to the fundamentalist yeah. Christian psycho anti-choice clinic picketing father-in-law. Yeah. That's that's a nuclear bomb. Well, I do want to clarify that he, as far as I know, has not picketed any clinics. I just had dreams about this happening. <laughs> okay, well, it's a good good point of clarification there. But still, talk with this with your husband at great length about your your feelings mm-hmm. of conflict here, and keep listening to the podcast. I'm sure there's gonna be a lot of calls uh, about this with people okay. with their perspectives. And their advice. And I do think, again, I want to emphasize, be out about being pro-choice and argue your side at family events, family gatherings. Be the one that if there are girls in that family, in your extended family, in your husband's family who are 15, 16, 17, 18, be that adult that they know that they can go to for for advice and information and referrals about birth control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And about abortion if they need it and about plan B if they need it. 
Right. Right. I already do that. Well, um, good. And having those yeah. kinds of conversations identifies you to younger relatives and an extended family as the potential trusted confidant family member that they can turn to in a crisis when they know they can't turn mm-hmm. to mom or dad or grandma or grandpa. There's aunt, baby killer, whatever her name is, right? <laughs> that they yeah. can turn to. Absolutely. That would have made a huge difference for me when I was 19. Well, so. be, be that person and you can be that person without yeah. saying, hey, father-in-law. Yeah, you're yeah. right. You're right. There's a huge difference between being vocal and, and actually telling them that I'm personally involved in this. The nuclear bomb. It's a the nu- It's a. It, there are truths, and then there's the nuclear bomb of truth. And I, right. I believe okay. in. I believe in truth telling, but I just I keep putting myself somehow psychically in your boy in your husband's shoes and thinking, holy shit, would it be worth it? Yeah, yeah. The, the, he's a. He's he's been great supporting me in doing this. And maybe the way you demonstrate some consideration and support back. Is saying okay, we will omit this detail. I will. Yeah. I will uncharacteristically not tell this truth. Out of deference to your feelings about how to manage your relationship with your parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. Okay. Good luck. All right. Thanks so much, Dan. And like I said, listen to the podcast the next few weeks. I bet we get a lot of calls about this with other people who have the advice for you. Hey, Dan. Uh, I'm calling about episode 372 for the guy who's worried about his partner's drinking problem. And neither of you brought up what seems like the most obvious concern to me, and that would be postpartum depression. The child age isn't mentioned, but if she was used to drinking before she had the baby, it could really easily become a crutch for her if she started having problems. Anyway, regardless, the picture painted on the show, uh, in the call, is of somebody who's just barely holding it together. The drunk driving, the getting so drunk she can't cook or perform basic tasks. And I just really wanted to urge this guy to drop the judgmental tone and really talk to his partner about how she's feeling. Hi, I'm calling about episode 372 about the caller whose wife is having some difficulties with her drinking. I just wanted to suggest, in addition to what Dan was uh, saying, that the caller could maybe check out Al-Anon. It's a great mutual aid 12-step program for family and friends of alcoholics. So that might be a good place for him to hash out some of these challenges he's been having. Hi, Dan. I was just listening to episode 372, and I had to call. I've never called before, but it's relation to the couple that are drinkers, and he doesn't like his wife drinking with the kid in the house. That woman, and possibly the both of them, are alcoholics. There is no tapering back up to having a few drinks to loosen up if you're an alcoholic. It's either all or nothing, and they need to both get on the nothing track if they want that relationship and that family to work. That is a toxic environment for that little girl, and they both need to get on the bandwagon together and support each other. If his wife is not willing to do that, he needs to leave her and take that child out of that situation. I know this from a personal experience, and I just wanted to make that point clear, Dan. There's no having a few drinks. If you're an alcoholic, you got to stay away from the shit. And we're going to leave it there. A big thank you, as ever, to all the subscribers to the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you all for your support. And if you'd like to give the gift of the Savage Lovecast, and I'm sure you know people who could use some Lovecast in their lives, just go buy another season and then click Gift. Look for the gray bar in your cart. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, please give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. 
Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. If you like gay porn, follow KyleOwnsAllAss on Twitter at KyleOwnsAllAss on Twitter. The Savage Lovecast is produced by Nancy Hartunian and me and the Tech Savvy at Rescue. We'll be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.